our revered leader of years past, President David O. McKay, has often said, The purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to make evil-minded men good and to make good men better. The Lord said to the people of ancient America, And whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do good is of me. For good cometh of none, save it be of me. I am the same that leadeth men to all good. To be good one must seek after truth, for truth is the ingredients which, when inculcated into our lives, changes a person for good. Truth is the knowledge of things as they are, and as they were, and as they are to come. Truth abideth and haveth no end. Intelligence is the ability to use knowledge properly. The Lord has said the glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. The light which this scripture speaks of is the light of Christ. For Jesus further said, I am the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. One of my earliest recollections happened when I was about four years of age. Several blocks from our home was a little wooden grocery store. In the front of the store, in front of the store windows, the proprietor had built a ledge about four inches wide, where at this time of the year he placed big, juicy apples to attract those passing by. As I walked by the front of the store, I saw those beautiful red apples, and my mouth began to water. Without realizing what I was doing, I took one and continued walking up the street. When I got a short distance away, I looked at what I had in my hand and suddenly realized I had stolen an apple. I began to run, but made the mistake of running the wrong way. <laughs> On the downhill side of our front porch, there was lattice work between the porch level and the ground level. A small door enabled us to store gardening tools under the porch and also gave us access to a convenient place to hide. I ran all the way home, crawled under the porch, and sat there all afternoon shivering with fear and eating the apple. <laughs> I knew that I had done wrong, and I knew my Heavenly Father knew I had done wrong. I have often reflected upon how I suffered from a remorse of conscience at such an early age. The light of Christ, which lights every man that comes into the world, was evident that day, which in later years caused me to ponder about how the light of Christ can influence our lives. Envision yourself standing on the banks of the River Jordan on a particular day nearly 2,000 years ago and observing two men standing in the water. John the Baptist, clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle about, of skin about his loins, is baptizing Jesus. And Jesus, dressed in the garb of the day, is coming up out of the water. The heavens open and a marvelous thing occurs. The Holy Ghost descends in the form of a dove and lights upon him. And a voice from heaven is heard saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
Envision yourself sometime later in the temple in Jerusalem. The weather is hot outside, but inside the thick stone walls give relief to a group gathered in discussion. It is Jesus talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go, but ye cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that beareth witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. And later John bore record that Jesus received a fullness of the glory of the Father, and he receiveth all power in heaven and on earth, and the glory of the Father was with him. The testimony of the Father, the testimony of Jesus, and the testimony of John were not for the people of their day alone but for men down through the ages. It was documented, documented then for us today and is just as valid today as it was 2,000 years ago. The truths of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ have been restored to the earth through the prophet Joseph Smith and are available to each of us for study. In my limited experience in the fields of religion and education, I have concluded that it takes as much intelligence for one to assimilate the principles of the gospel as it does for one to understand the complicated formulas of science. An understanding of the gospel is a quest and must be pursued through study, thought, and prayer. Brigham Young taught, all true wisdom that mankind have they have received from God, whether they knew it or not. There is no ingenious mind that has ever invented anything beneficial to the human family but what he obtained it from one source. There is only one source from whence men obtain wisdom, and that is God, the fountain of all wisdom. And though men may claim to make their discoveries by their own wisdom, by meditation and reflection, they are indebted to our Father in heaven for all. To those who pursue and apply gospel principles, the Lord says, And if your glory be single to, if your eye be single to my glory, your whole body shall be filled with light, and there shall be no darkness in you. And that body which is filled with light comprehendeth all things. President Joseph F. Smith said, The knowledge of truth combined with proper regard for it and its faithful observance constitutes true education. The mere stuffing of the mind with the knowledge of facts is not education. The mind must not only possess a, truth of, a knowledge of truth, but the soul must revere it, love it, cherish it as a priceless gem, and this human life must be guided and shaped by it in order to fulfill its destiny. Of what value is truth unless it is assimilated into the hearts and minds of men? Truth is the rock foundation of every great character, wrote William George Jordan. It is loyalty to the right as we see it. 
It is the living of our lives in harmony with our ideals. The Lord says whatever principle of intelligence we gain in this life will rise with us in the resurrection. And if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much advantage in the world to come. He further said it is impossible for a man to be saved in ignorance. Brigham Young asked the question, When shall we cease to learn? And then he answered his own question with these words, Never, never. We should not overlook the fact that some truths have little or nothing to do with our eternal salvation, while others are essential to it. When one is loyal to the truth, we say he is a person of great integrity. Of integrity. When one is loyal to the truth under intense opposition, we say he is a person of great integrity. Integrity is a quality or state of being of sound moral principle. Integrity is uprightness and honesty and sincerity. Yes, all that and even more. Following the first vision of the Prophet Joseph Smith, he was persecuted unmercifully for the rest of his life and died as a martyr at 38 years of age. Yet he never wavered in declaring what he knew to be the truth. He knew that if he denied what he had said, the persecution would cease. Yet he stood firm. He recorded, I saw a light, and in the midst of that light I saw two personages, and they did in reality speak to me. And though I was hated and persecuted for saying that I had seen a vision, yet it was true. And while they were persecuting me, reviling me, and speaking all manner of evil against me falsely for so saying, I was led to say in my heart, Why persecute me for telling the truth? I have actually seen a vision, and who am I that I can withstand God? Or why does the world think to make me deny what I have actually seen? For I had seen a vision. I knew it, and I knew God knew it, and I could not deny it. Neither dared I do it. At least I knew that by so doing I would offend God and come under condemnation. To so react requires great integrity and also builds great integrity. We revere Abraham Lincoln because of his commitment to a principle in which he strongly believed. And though the opposition was severe, the pathway filled with stumbling blocks and the future dark and uncertain, he tenaciously held to what he believed to be right, prevailed in the cause, and eventually won the undying gratitude of a nation that was destined to become great. We have other such patriots in other lands throughout the world who are heralded as men of great integrity. Samuel Johnson made an interesting statement when he wrote, Integrity without knowledge is weak and useless. Knowledge without integrity is dangerous and dreadful. Leaders in schools of elementary and secondary and higher education know that the true success of their system is measured by the man it forms. Such is true also in families, politics, governments, and religion. Many live by the motto that the end justifies the means. There are those who gain their possessions by deceit, bribery, and dishonest practices. 
then seek legitimacy by contributing freely to a righteous cause. Integrity cannot be compromised. Integrity is sustained by forethought and commitment. It was written of Helaman stripling warriors, Yea, they did obey and observe to perform every word of command with exactness. They were fully committed to what they would do when they got into the heat of battle. Their efforts won them the crown of integrity. Let us review our own lives to determine how each of us measure up in our own quest for integrity. As an employee, are you committed to give at least 40 hours work for 40 hours pay? Do you enthusiastically work in your job and use your best efforts to strengthen the company for which you work? Do you, as an administrator, study your challenges thoroughly and anticipate the results before you submit your recommendations? Do you jump at conclusions without taking the time to know the facts before you make your decision? Do you properly sustain those working under your jurisdiction? Do you sincerely sustain those to whom you are responsible? Do you young men and young women stand loyal to the, in the face of opposition to those moral principles you have been taught in the home? Do you as a wife and mother strive earnestly to create an atmosphere of love and harmony in the home? Do you fathers and mothers seriously strive to inculcate values of integrity, talents, charity, and good manners in your children? Are you completely honest with yourself and others? Are you obedient to him who gave you life? The Lord said to the people in his day and to us too, By their fruits ye shall know them. For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither does a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree is known by his own fruit. May I suggest a formula for bringing forth good fruit and helping one to gain eternal salvation? Number one, have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in oneself. Number two, study eternal truths. Number three, ponder and pray for understanding. Number four, strive to incorporate principles of truth into daily living. And five, exercise integrity in all that one does. Let us diligently strive to understand the wonderful things of God. The jewels of the gospel of Jesus Christ are within our reach, and we must seek and ask and strive and live the principles of truth. When we do so, we will become better men and better women and contribute to a better community, a better nation, and a better world, for which I pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Recently, new temples were dedicated in Sydney, Australia, and in the Philippines. <clears throat> One of the inspired dedicatory prayers offered by President Gordon B. Hinckley implored God our Father to bless thy saints in their faith to remain true as a covenant people, <clears throat> that they shall grow in wisdom, he continued, both spiritual and temporal, 
that they shall grow in virtue and in knowledge and in love for thee, and that the evil designs of thine enemies be frustrated. Close quote. It is about the evil designs of thine enemies that I shall speak about. I have prayed uh, for spiritual guidance and that I might be able to communicate to you in a thoughtful manner the frank and candid expressions of concern over the spreading of the evil in our society today. Over the past 20 years, a plague of pornography has swept across most countries of the world with increasing momentum and devastating impact. What began a few years ago as a few crude picture magazines that startled sensitive people has grown to hundreds of publications, each seeking to outdo the others with increasingly shocking content. So-called adult bookstores selling materials that appeal to the prurient mind are now open in nearly every city. Obscene materials once available only by mail and in a plain brown wrapper now are prominently displayed on the magazine racks of many local convenience stores and other business establishments where they are readily accessible to the young and the old alike. Theaters showing X-rated films and worse have become established in most cities. It is reported that one particularly offensive movie, filmed at a cost of $40,000, has earned revenues of over $600 million. It should come as no surprise that grand juries have found that 90% of all pornography is dominated by organized crime. Large profits from one project become a source of funds for still larger and more sophisticated enterprises as a growing tidal wave of smut dashes against the weakening bulwarks of morality. New technologies that can bless our lives in so many positive ways are also being used to spread pornographic corruption. Video recorders now can bring to homes great classics of music, history, art, and drama. But they also bring into some of these same homes lurid portrayals of debauchery that culminate those that contaminate those who view it and extend their corrupting influence to our communities and societies. Cable televisions and satellite transmission with their powerful capacity for good are not only being used but are also being abused. State and national laws necessary to govern their proper use are not yet established and are almost totally unregulated. Greedy men have been ready to exploit this vacuum in legal regulation without regard for the consequence to its victims. Some may ask, what is pornography? It was United States Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart who said that while he could not exactly define pornography, I know it when I see it, he said. Pornography is not a victimless crime. Who are its victims? 
First, those who either intentionally or sometimes involuntarily are exposed to it. Pornography is addictive. What may begin as a curious exploration can become a controlling habit. Studies show that those who allow themselves to become drawn to pornography soon become to crave, to crave even coarser content. Continued exposure desensitizes the spirit and can erode the conscience of unwary people. A victim becomes a slave to carnal thoughts and actions. As the thought is father to the deed, exposure can lead to acting out what is nurtured in the mind. But there are other victims. Crimes of violence have increased in the United States up to five times the rate of our population growth. A 1983 University of New Hampshire study found that states having the highest readership of pornography magazines have also the highest number of reported rapes. Pornography degrades and exploits men and women and children in a most ugly and corrupt fashion. Perhaps the greatest tragedy of all is in the lives of children who become its victims. The saddest trend of our day is the alarming large increase in child abuse. Much of it is, occurs within families and involves corrupting the divine innocence that children have from birth. We sing, as we did this morning, I am a child of God, and he has sent me here. Teach me, guide me, walk beside me, help me find the way that I, I might live with him someday are part of those words. The Savior reserved his harshest condemnation for those who would offend little children. He said, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The Lord further, further commanded, Neither commit adultery nor do anything like unto it. The early apostles and prophets warned against sins that are reprehensible. Adultery, infidelity, impurity, inordinate affection, sexual relations outside of marriage, sex perversion, preoccupation with sex in one's thoughts, and one of the worst of these sins is incest. Sexual relations between persons so closely related that they are forbidden by law to marry. Incest is an ugly sin, and this sin particularly may irreparably damage its innocent victims. Yet what impels these offenders to such terrible deeds? Police report that some 80% of those who molest young boys and girls admitted modeling their attacks on pornography they had viewed. How has this evil gained such a foothold in our society? Have we ignored the warnings of our church leaders? 
President Kimball declared, so long as men are corrupt and revel in sewer filth, entertainers will sell them what they want. Laws may be passed, arrests may be made, lawyers may argue, and courts may sentence men of corrupt minds. But pornography and insults to decency will never cease until men have cleansed their minds. Continuing, President Kimball said, and when man is sick and tired of being drowned in filth, he will not pay for that filth and its source will dry up. Hence, it is obvious, he continued, that to remain clean and worthy, one must stay positively and conclusively away from the devil's territory, avoiding the least approach towards evil. Satan leaves his fingerprints. End of quote. This growing presence of obscenity has been aided by the lowering of media standards for advertising, by relaxed movie ratings, by television soap operas, and situation comedies that use their powerful voice to justify, glamorize, and encourage sexual relations outside of marriage. Perhaps we have been intimidated by those who claim that producing, distributing, and using obscene materials is a basic right to be defended. This is not true. Even under the divinely inspired constitutional principles of this land, obscenity is not condoned or protected. The United States Supreme Court has clearly held that criminal prosecution of those who produce and distribute obscene materials does not violate the First Amendment rights. This spreading evil has been aided by a failure to enforce laws designed to prohibit or regulate it. Although some additional legislation may be helpful, those who have been fighting the discouraging battle against pornography in recent years are in agreement that nearly 90% of all such materials could be eliminated from our communities if, if existing obscenity laws were strictly enforced. A few courageous cities have performed outstanding service in ridding themselves of X-rated theaters and so-called adult bookstores and by limiting access to hardcore pornographic books and magazines. The citizens of Mount Lebanon, Pennsylvania, formed a citizens' action group and determined that they were not going to allow such degrading material in their community. They closed an adult bookshop and a large distribution warehouse. And as a result of their determined citizens' organization and involvement, have had enacted a city public nuisance ordinance. Lawmaking bodies will listen to effectively organized citizens. However, too often the trend is tragically towards citizen apathy and a sense of futility. And who is to blame? We could conveniently point the accusing finger at public prosecutors who are not vigorously enforcing the law. But we need men and women of courage and conviction in these offices of public trust if the awful tide is to be stemmed. But as one accusing finger is pointing towards those who make or enforce the law, uh, 
Another may point to ourselves, who may be equally to blame. Fortunately, what is deemed legally obscene is partially determined by local community standards. We as citizens, by our own standards, are the ones who can help establish what offensive materials are, which ones are legally obscene, and cannot claim protection from the law. Unfortunately, many people assume that even such hardcore material is legal is legal because it is so prevalent. But that is not true. Some public prosecutors may excuse themselves from seeking enforcement of, of, of obscenity laws by explaining that community standards determine what is obscene. They, therefore, conclude that because the community tolerates such material, its presence must reflect the accepted community standard. Concerned citizens, you and I, can change this misunderstanding. What then is needed to reverse this ominous insult to ourselves, our families, and our communities? Only when men and women concerned for their families and communities let their voices and their influence be felt in thoughtful, rational ways will we alter the destructive course on which we are traveling. Silent indignation may be misinterpreted as approval. Irrational action may be ineffective because it is regarded as prudish rather than thoughtful. Albert Camus wrote, By your actions or your silence, you too enter the fray. May I suggest a few things each of us could do to halt this deadly evil. First, let each of us resolve this day to keep our minds, our bodies, and our spirits free from the corrupting influence of pornography, including everything that is obscene and indecent. Let it have no place in our homes, our minds, or our hearts. The psalmist David wrote, who shall ascend unto the hills of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. If those who hear my voice have in their possession offensive materials that should be destroyed, let this be the day of decision and action. If someone listening has been tempted or thought of, or even considered abusing or offending a child, may they this day confess, repent, and forsake such evil thoughts or actions. James, the apostle and the brother of our Lord, wrote, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. End of quote. Parents, discuss with your children of appropriate age and in sensitive ways the harmful effects and an addictive nature of such material. Rigidly monitor the selection of television programs, movies, video cassettes, 
music, and other forms of entertainment for your family. Let us never, by purchasing these damaging materials, contribute to the financial success of those who deal in this material. We would encourage you to foster in your homes a love of knowledge through uplifting literature, wholesome books, selective movies and television, classical and exemplary popular music, entertainment that uplifts and edifies the spirit and the mind. Second, let our voices be heard in our communities, members and non-members alike. If something offends standards of decency, our voice should be heard. We would encourage members to persevere in their efforts to work with local groups and in establishing a visible relationship with other like-minded citizens and seek to preserve our quality of life by encouraging steps against such material. Should we not actively approach the management of some stores, movie theaters, bookstores, television and radio stations with a request to withdraw indecent materials from public display or use or patronage? Of course, such efforts should be consistent with the constitutional process exercising gentle persuasion. Some nationally owned and franchised convenience stores and others have responded to the courteous request of their customers to discontinue selling certain degrading materials. We commend them for what they have done and would encourage others to follow their lead. And third, we can make our own elected officials and law enforcement people aware that we support the fair enforcement of laws prohibiting obscenity and regulating indecency. Thank them for their past service and present efforts and encourage them to continue the difficult and sometimes thankless task of strictly enforcing the existing laws in a consistent and fair manner. And fourth, where legislation is needed to meet new technological advances in cable and satellite transmission, let us support the enactment of reasonable laws and regulations that would help reduce the number of those lives who will otherwise become marred by, the, by addiction, child abuse, and many of the other special ills that pornography helps foster. These laws should be carefully drawn within constitutional limitations so that the freedoms we seek for ourselves now and in the future are not denied for others. And fifth, let us exercise our faith and prayerfully seek help from God our Father in this vital task. There are some who believe that the, that the pornography industry is out of control, already too powerful to curb. I would disagree with this dim view, but recognize the immensity of the task before us. We know that people of goodwill, united in such a worthy cause, where the moral fiber of our nation may be at stake and aided by divine power can overcome any obstacle and meet any challenge to help our Lord and Savior to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. 
There is a line of demarcation, said President George Albert Smith, well defined between the Lord's territory and the devil's. If you will stay on the Lord's side of the line, you will be under his influence and will have no desire to do wrong. But if you cross to the devil's side of the line one inch, you are in the tempter's power. And if he is successful, you will not be able to think or even reason properly, because you will have lost the Spirit of the Lord. Close quote. As a man soweth, so shall he reap. May we purify our personal lives, each of us, strengthen our homes, not just talk about it, but to strengthen our homes and recognize the evil forces that are working through insidious ways to thwart our eternal progress, I humbly pray as I declare the reality of our eternal Father in heaven and in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer, in his holy name, amen. It's the Sabbath day, and outside such a glorious day that all nature seems to bespeak the works of God. I can't refrain from saying with the poet, Ye clouds of June and flowers of June and skies of June together cannot rival for one hour October's bright blue weather. I desire to share a few thoughts about a basic doctrine of the Church. What I say is based on these convictions. First, instruction vital to our salvation is not hidden in an obscure verse or phrase in the scriptures. To the contrary, essential truths are repeated over and over again. Second, every verse, whether off-quoted or obscure, must be measured against other verses. There are complementary and tempering teachings in the scripture which bring a balanced knowledge of truth. Next, there is a consistency in what the Lord says and what he does, and it is evident in all creation. Nature can teach valuable lessons about doctrinal and spiritual matters. The Lord drew lessons from foxes, from flowers, from seeds and salt and sparrows and sunsets. Fourth, all that God has said is not in the Bible. Other scriptures, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, have equal validity, and they sustain one another. And fifth, while must, much must be taken on faith, there is individual revelation through which we may know the truth. There is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. What may be obscure in the scriptures can be made plain through the gift of the Holy Ghost. We can have as full a knowledge of spiritual things as we are willing to earn. And I add one more conviction. There is an adversary who has his own spiritual channels of communication. He confuses the careless and prompts those who serve him to devise deceptive counterfeit doctrine, carefully contrived to appear genuine. I mention this because now, as always, there are self-appointed spokesmen who scoff at what we believe and misrepresent what we teach. 
As a young seminary teacher, I learned a valuable lesson from our principal, Abel S. Rich. He told me, if you really want to know what a man is and what he believes, do not go to his enemies. Go to the man himself or to his friends. He does not confide the thoughts of his heart to his enemies. His friends know him best. They know his strengths, his weakness. They will represent him fairly. His enemies will misrepresent him. The doctrine I wish to discuss concerns the nature of man and of God. There's a question in both the Old and the New Testaments. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? The answer is taught most simply in the song we sang together at the intermission of the meeting. I am a child of God, and he has sent me here, has given me an earthly home with parents kind and dear. I am a child of God, rich blessings are in store. If I but learn to do his will, I'll live with him once more. Those lyrics teach a basic doctrine of the Church. We are the children of God. Now that doctrine isn't hidden away in an obscure verse. It's taught over and over again in the scriptures. These clear examples from the Bible. All of you are children of the Most High. And we are the offspring of God. Doctrinal truths are interrelated. You know, there's the old saying, if you pick up one end of a stick, you pick up the other end as well. If you concede that we are his children, you must allow that God is our Father. That, too, is repeated over and over again in the scriptures. There's so many references I couldn't begin to read them to you, but I make this point. Christ did not speak only of the Father or of my Father. He spoke of your Father and of our Father. He even put them together in one sentence, saying, Your Father and your God and my God. God is addressed universally in the Christian world as Father. And were we not commanded to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven? Now you may respond, Every Christian knows that. Well, perhaps every Christian knows but so-called Christians, with the help of clergymen, belittle in the most unchristian ways our teaching that we are the literal sons and daughters of God. Other ideals flow from that great truth. Once you know that, you know that all men are brothers, and that realization changes you. Thereafter, you cannot willingly injure another. You could not transgress against them in any way. And that simple, profound doctrine is worth knowing for another reason as well. It brings a feeling of self-worth, dignity, self-respect, and self-pity and depression fade away. And we can then yield to the discipline of a loving father and accept even the very hard lessons of life. Christ taught us, be ye perfect, 
even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect, to take on his attributes, to follow the pattern of our parentage. A little girl taught me a profound lesson on this subject. Surely you're not above learning from little children. Much of what I know that really matters, I have learned from being a father. Some years ago, I returned home and the children were waiting in the driveway. They discovered some newly hatched chicks in the barn under the manger. When they reached for them, a protective mother hen had rebuffed them, so they came for reinforcements. I soon gathered a handful of little chicks for them to see and to touch. As our little girl held one of them, I said in a teasing way, that will make a nice watchdog as it grows up, won't it? She looked quizzically at me as if I didn't know much. So I changed my approach. It won't be a watchdog, will it? No, Daddy. Then I added, it'll be a nice riding horse. Then she wrinkled up her nose and gave me that, oh, Dad, look. Even a four-year-old knows that a chick will not be a dog, nor a horse, nor even a turkey. It'll be a chicken. It will follow the pattern of its parentage. She knew that without having had a course in genetics, without a lesson or a lecture. No lesson is more manifest in nature than that all living things do as the Lord commanded in the creation. They reproduce, quote, after their own kind. They follow the pattern of their parentage. Everyone knows that. Every four-year-old knows that. A bird will not become a fish or an animal. A mammal will not beget reptiles, nor do men gather figs of thistles. In the countless billions of opportunities and the reproduction of living things, one kind does not beget another. If a species ever does cross, the offspring cannot reproduce. The pattern for all life is the pattern of the parentage. This is demonstrated in so many obvious ways. Even an ordinary mind should understand it. Surely no one with reverence for God could believe that his children evolved from slime or from reptiles. Although one can easily imagine that those who accept the theory of evolution don't show much enthusiasm for genealogical research. <laughs> we, <laughs> the theory of evolution, and it is a theory, will have an entirely different dimension when the workings of God in creation are fully revealed. Since every living thing follows the pattern of its parentage, are we to suppose that God had some other strange pattern in mind for his offspring? Surely we, his children, are not, in the language of science, a different species than he is. What is in error, then, when we use the term godhood to describe the ultimate destiny of mankind? We may be young in our progression, juvenile even infantile, compared to him. Nevertheless, in the eternities to come, if we are worthy, 
we may be like unto him, enter his presence, see as we are seen, and know as we are known, and receive a fullness. This doctrine is not at variance with the scriptures. Nevertheless, it's easy to understand why some Christians reject it, because it introduces the possibility that man may achieve godhood. Their concern centers on certain verses of the scripture. For there are many references, at least twenty in the Bible alone, which speak of one God. Example, Ephesians 4 and 6. There is one God, the Father of us all. But if you hold too strictly to a rigid interpretation of those verses, you create a serious theological problem for yourself, because there are many other verses in, of Scripture, at least an equal number in the Bible, that speak in plural terms of lords and gods. The first chapter of Genesis states, And God said, Let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness. Such references are found from Genesis to Revelations. The strongest one is given by Christ himself when he quoted that very clear verse from the 82nd Psalm. Is it not written in your law, I said ye are gods? If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemous, because I said, I am a son of God. The acceptance of this does not mean accepting the multiple gods of mythology, or nor the polytheism of the pagans, which was so roundly condemned by Isaiah and the other prophets. There is one God, the Father of all. This we accept as fundamental doctrine. There is only one Redeemer, Mediator, Savior. This we know. There is one Holy Ghost, a personage of spirit who completes the Godhead. I have emphasized the word one in each sentence, but I have used it three times. Three is plural. Paul used the plural many and the singular one in the same verse. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but there is but one God, the Father. Anyone who believes and teaches of God the Father and accepts the divinity of Christ and of the Holy Ghost teaches a plurality of gods. When the early apostles were gone, those who assumed the leadership of the Church forsook revelation and relied on reason. The idea of three separate gods offended them, for it appeared to contravene those scriptures which refer to one God. To reconcile that problem, they took verses here and there and ignored all else that bears on the subject, and they tried to stir the three ones together in some kind of a mysterious composite one. They came up with creeds that cannot be squared with scripture, and they're left with a philosophy which opposes all we know about creation and of the laws of nature. And that, interestingly enough, 
defies the very reason upon which they came to depend. The Apostle Paul understood this doctrine and wrote to the Philippians, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Lorenzo Snow, a modern apostle, wrote a poem to his ancient counterpart Paul, from which I quote only one verse. A son of God, like God to be, would not be robbing deity, and he who has this hope within will purify himself from sin. What could inspire one to purity and worthiness more than to possess a spiritual confirmation that we are the children of God? What could inspire a more lofty regard for oneself or engender more love for mankind? This thought does not fill me with arrogance. It fills me with overwhelming humility. Nor does it sponsor any inclination to worship oneself or any man. The doctrine we teach has no provision for lying or stealing, for pornography, immoralities, for child abuse or abortion or murder. We are bound by the laws of his church as sons and daughters of God to avoid all of these and every other unholy or impure practice. We did not invent this doctrine. Much of it was preserved in the Bible as it was revealed to prophets in ancient times and as they foretold. Further light and knowledge was revealed. With the restoration of the gospel came the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. And other revelations were given and continue to be given. And verses which seem to oppose one another have harmony. The prophet Joseph Smith said, It is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God. And that knowledge is given us. The Father is the one true God. This thing is certain. No one will ever ascend above him. No one will ever replace him. Nor will anything ever change the relationship that we, his literal offspring, have with him. He is Elohim, the Father. He is God. Of him there is only one. We revere our Father and our God. We worship him. There is only one Christ, one Redeemer. We accept the divinity of the only begotten Son of God in the flesh. We accept the promise that we may become joint heirs with him. Paul wrote to the Romans, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. There are those who mock our beliefs in the most uncharitable ways, and we will bear what they do with long-suffering, for it does not change the truth. And in their own way, they move our work along a little faster. We will send our missionaries abroad to teach that we are the literal sons and daughters of God. We will strive with every exertion to teach what he taught 
to live as he lived and to endure as he endured, we began with this question, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Our Redeemer, our elder brother, asked, What manner of men ought she to be? And then he answered, Verily I say unto you, even as I am. I bear solemn witness that Jesus is the Christ, the only begotten of the Father in the flesh, that he is our Redeemer, our Savior, that God is our Father. This we know through the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I humbly but resolutely affirm that we will not, we cannot stray from this doctrine. On this fundamental truth, we will never yield. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My remarks this morning are directed primarily to those of you who have accepted the gospel and are members of the Church, and to those of you who may be seriously contemplating such acceptance and membership. Both the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Church of Jesus Christ are true and divine and there is an essential relationship between them that is significant and very important. Understanding the proper relationship between the gospel and the Church will prevent confusion, misplaced priorities, and failed expectations, and will lead to the realization of gospel goals through happy, fulfilling participation in the Church. Such understanding will avoid possible disaffection and will result in great personal blessings. As I attempt to describe and comment upon the essential relationship between the gospel and the Church, it is my prayer that a perspective may be developed which will enhance the influence of both the gospel and the Church in our individual lives. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a divine and perfect plan. It is composed of eternal, unchanging principles, laws, and ordinances which are universally applicable to every individual, regardless of time, place, or circumstance. Gospel principles never change. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the kingdom of God on earth administered by the priesthood of God. The Church has authority to teach correctly the principles and doctrines of the gospel and to administer its essential ordinances. The gospel is the divine plan for personal, individual salvation and exaltation. The Church is divinely commissioned to provide the means and resources that implement this plan in each individual's life. Procedures, programs, and policies are developed within the Church to help us realize gospel blessings according to our individual 
capacity and circumstances. Under divine direction, these policies, programs, and procedures may be changed from time to time as necessary to fulfill gospel purposes. Underlying every aspect of Church administration and activity are the revealed eternal principles contained in the scriptures. As individually and collectively we increase our knowledge, acceptance, and application of gospel principles, we can more effectively utilize the Church to make our lives increasingly gospel-centered. The eternal principles of the gospel implemented through the divinely inspired Church apply to a wide variety of individuals in diverse cultures. Therefore, as we live the gospel and participate in the Church, the conformity we require of ourselves and others should be according to God's standards. The orthodoxy upon which we insist must be founded in fundamental principles, eternal law, and direction given by those authorized in the Church. A necessary perspective is gained by studying and pondering the scriptures. Reading the scriptures, we learn the gospel as it is taught by various prophets in a variety of circumstances, times, and places. We see the consequences as the gospel is accepted or rejected by individuals and as its principles are applied or not. In the scriptures, we discover that varying institutional forms, procedures, regulations, and ceremonies are utilized, all divinely designed to implement eternal principles. The practices and procedures change. The principles do not. Through scripture study, we may learn eternal principles and how to relate them to institutional resources. As we liken the scriptures unto ourselves, we can better utilize the restored Church to live, learn, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. A favorite scriptural source for me is the Old Testament book of Leviticus. It is basically a handbook for Hebrew priests and contains many rules, regulations, rituals, and ceremonies which seem strange and inapplicable to us. It also contains eternal principles of the gospel, which are familiar and very much applicable to everyone. It is interesting and enlightening to read the 19th chapter of Leviticus, noting both the principles and the rules and practices. In the first two verses we read, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation of the children of Israel. Here is the principle of revelation. God speaks to his children through prophets. He does so today. Continuing, the Lord says to Moses, Say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Jesus, 
in the Sermon on the Mount said, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Here is an eternal principle of the gospel. There follow other eternal principles, some from the Ten Commandments. Also included are rules and programs intended to implement these principles among the ancient Hebrews in their particular circumstances. For example, the divinely directed responsibility to care for the poor is taught. A program is presented, namely, providing for the poor by leaving the gleanings of the crops and not reaping the corners of the fields. Current programs to care for the poor are much different. The divine law is the same. Yet another principle underlies both programs, ancient and modern, that is, those being assisted are given opportunity to participate in helping themselves to the extent of their capacity. In verse 13, the principle of honesty is taught, accompanied by a rule requiring employers to pay employees for their work at the end of each day. Generally, today, that rule is not necessary. The eternal principle of honesty is implemented by other rules and practices. Verse 27 contains a rule about personal grooming. It is clearly not applicable to us. However, we also have standards of dress and grooming. Neither is an eternal principle. Both are intended to help us implement and share gospel principles. The principle of forgiveness is also set forth in the same chapter of Leviticus, verse 18, concluding with the second great commandment, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, with the added divine imprimatur, I am the Lord. Every Church member has the opportunity, right, and privilege to receive a personal witness regarding gospel principles and Church practices. Without such a witness, one may feel confused and perhaps even burdened by what may appear to be simply institutional requirements of the Church. We should obey the commandments and the counsels of Church leaders, but also, through study, prayer, and by the influence of the Holy Spirit, we should seek and obtain an individual personal witness that the principle or counsel is correct and divinely inspired. Then we can give enlightened, enthusiastic obedience, utilizing the Church through which to give allegiance, time, talent, and other resources without reluctance or resentment. Happy, fulfilling participation in the Church results when we relate Church goals, programs, and policies to gospel principles and to personal eternal goals. When we see the harmony between the gospel and the Church in our daily lives, we are much more likely to do the right things for the right reasons. 
we will exercise self-discipline and righteous initiative, guided by Church leaders and by a sense of divine accountability. The Church aids us in our effort to use our free agency creatively, not to invent our own values, principles, and interpretations, but to learn and live the eternal truths of the gospel. Gospel living is a process of continuous individual renewal and improvement until the person is prepared and qualified to enter comfortably and with confidence into the presence of God. My brothers and sisters, by inclination, training, and experience, most of my life I have sought understanding by the accumulation of facts and the application of reason. I continue to do so. However, that which I know most surely and which has most significantly and positively affected my life, I do not know by facts and reason alone, but rather by the comforting, confirming witness of the Holy Spirit. By that same Spirit, I testify that God is our Father, that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten of the Father in the flesh, and that he is the Savior and Redeemer of all mankind and each of us. Through his atoning sacrifice, redemption and exaltation are offered as a free gift to all who will accept by faith, repentance, and sacred ordinances. May each of us continue to learn and apply the eternal principles of the gospel, utilizing fully and appropriately the resources of the divine Church. In the words of the Nephite leader Pehoran, may we rejoice in the great privilege of our Church and in the cause of our Redeemer and our God. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen.